Right. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. If you would turn to Revelation chapter 11, we want to continue worshiping today. It's always encouraging to hear how God has worked in people's lives to bring them to Christ. And we all need encouragement in our Christian lives in light of various things that are going on in the world. And obviously, uh, in our own country uh, this week, uh, there was a major decision with regard to abortion in our country, which as Christians, we're very thankful uh, that God has given um, at least a majority of our Supreme Court justices the grace and courage to over- overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, obviously, it sends it back to the states, and there's going to be a lot of debate over that. As Christians, we rejoice over that because we do believe that all of life is sacred, including life in the womb. And yet for a lot of people, it's not rejoicing, but it's rage and it's anger and it's fear. And some of it is because of people um, um, implying that certain things are going to happen that aren't going to happen. But the reality is we live in a world in which... um, there is naturally a sinner's, a fundamental opposition to uh, God's standards. And anything that would seemingly prevent us from achieving our own happiness. And for a lot of people, uh, the idea of sexual freedom and abortion go together for the sake of their own personal happiness. And so if you remove one, it attacks the other and it challenges What they believe is the only way they can be truly happy in this life. And so, as a result, you've got people like Joy Reid, who's a MSNBC anchor, who tweeted after the decision, uh, shorter scotus Christianus, um, colon, women have no rights that states are bound to respect, uh, get pregnant even against your will, and you become state property. The thing that stood out to me about that tweet is that she makes a reference to Christians when she says Christianists or Christianists, I guess is what it literally says, which for a lot of people, the idea of opposition to uh, abortion is a Christian thing. And we need to understand that the secular mindset sees Christianity as a threat to their happiness. And therefore, not only do you have um, uh, crisis pregnancy centers being attacked, you have churches being attacked because of these kinds of things. So I just say that, um, obviously, because of what's going on in our country, but because of what we see in Revelation 11, because Revelation 11 highlights the world's fundamental opposition to God and Christ and Christians. And... As we get closer to the return of Christ, uh, that opposition will grow even greater. So let me read for us uh, this chapter, which is actually, uh, the book of Revelation is one of the most difficult books in the Bible, and uh, theologians look at chapter 11 and, say, and they will say this is uh, one of the most difficult chapters in the book of Revelation. So there's all kinds of uh, ideas about what all might be said here, but I'll give you my my uh, humble perspective on it, uh, knowing that there are others who have other different perspectives, and I respect those perspectives as well. But let's read this together and, and think about it and pray that God would help us 
to see it from his perspective and may it encourage us as we seek to speak the truth in love to people in light of all that's going on in our culture. Verse 1, it says, Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another. Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. This is the word of God. One of the things that I would just like to highlight is that The title of this message is The Invincible and the Vulnerable. 
And it's important to realize that this passage paints a picture for us uh, in which you've got believers being protected by God and yet not protected in every single way possible. Uh, They're protected to the point that they can give their testimony to Christ until their testimony is finished. They are invincible. And yet at some point they are killed, which means they're vulnerable. In one sense, they cannot be hurt. In another sense, they can be hurt. And that's the reality of being a Christian in a fallen world, in a hostile world, in a world that's hostile to Christ. So there's, there's this tension in Scripture, uh, this paradox in Scripture of being both invincible in some sense as a Christian and yet being very vulnerable in some sense as a Christian. That's the reason why I have the picture of um, Frodo and Sam. For those of you who are familiar with the Lord of the Rings, um, there are two hobbits, and hobbits are very little creatures. Uh, They're about half the size of a a normal uh, height of man, and they're pictured as uh, creatures that love comfort. They like to eat a lot. They like to have a good time. They don't like adventures. They don't like danger. They're not the type that would stand up and be the hero of the story. And yet the point of the Lord of the Rings is that at one point Frodo says, I'll take the ring to Mordor. And it appears that Tolkien is talking about the fact that God uses the weak to confound the strong. As it says in 1 Corinthians 1, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. He uses the vulnerable and he makes them in one sense invincible to accomplish his purposes. So Frodo and Sam, they're very vulnerable to the spiders and orcs and everything else out there. And yet they complete the mission. God, in a sense, I think through Tolkien is saying... Uh, This is what I do. I work through weak, vulnerable people, and I enable them to accomplish things they could not accomplish on their own. They do things that need to be done for the destruction of evil, and I make them invincible until their time is up, until their mission has been accomplished. And So that's why the Lord Jesus could say to Paul at one point, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And Paul could say, Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And so what we see here, I believe, in this chapter is a picture of um, the power of Christ in weakness. Uh, God using vulnerable believers to achieve great things for his glory. And um, the book of Revelation is about the fact that um, Christ rules over everything. Uh, He is Lord of heaven and earth. And he rules over everything for the good of his church, for the good of his people. And yet that does not mean that life is easy for Christians. does not mean um, this world is safe, so to speak. It's a very dangerous place. It's a dangerous thing to walk out your front door. And, And yet... Um, God is in charge of all of the suffering. 
in order to bring about his good purposes. But where we are in the book of Revelation at this point, we're in the midst of um, what could be called the Great Tribulation. The way I understand uh, what's going on in history is that you could picture history as a pregnancy. And the conception took place in Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve fell and sinned against God, God makes a promise. He says, I'm going to send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. At that point, um, conception took place. And the whole Old Testament is like the pregnancy, where, in a sense, history is pregnant with the promise of a Savior. And it's pregnant with the promise of a new heaven and a new earth, a return to paradise. Paradise is lost. God promises to restore paradise, to bring a Savior. The whole Old Testament is pregnant with that promise and being driven by that promise. And then when Christ comes, you have the beginning of birth pangs. Uh, The pregnancy is beginning to work toward the birth of something. The birth of what? Heaven on earth, the kingdom of heaven on earth. So Christ comes, he does what has to be done to set that in motion. The birth pangs begin, and so you've got between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, all kinds of things happening. They're like birth pangs that are saying um, a new kingdom is coming. And then as we know, when the birth gets very close, pain intensifies. They call it transition. And I believe that's what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the Great Tribulation. It's that transition. We're getting uh, near to the uh, birth of the child, the birth of the kingdom of God on earth. And I think that's where we are in the book of Revelation. That it's uh, the fig tree leaves that are beginning to indicate that Christ's coming is soon. Um, And uh, Revelation 11 is highlighting the fact that even in the midst of these very difficult days when things are getting worse and worse, God's protection is over his people. And so that's what I want us to think about and look at this morning and look at more um, carefully as we just see what this chapter has to say. In verses 1 and 2, what we find is we see um, John being given a measuring rod, which is the same kind of thing that Ezekiel was given in the Old Testament. And he's told to measure the temple of God and to measure the altar and those who worship in it. And evidently what's being talked about there is is picturing the idea that um, the temple of God is no longer a building. It's no longer a place. The temple of God is a people because the temple of God is where God's presence manifests itself. And as Christians, as individuals, and as the church, the New Testament says we are the temple of God. And so in a sense, uh, again, Revelation is is, uh, a collection of pictures that uh, tell us what the truth is. And the picture here is to measure the temple is for God to say, uh, I know who my people are. I know where they're to be found. I know exactly who they are. Indeed, I live within them. To measure the temple is to identify those that God is going to protect. He's going to give special care for. But when it says measure the altar, it highlights the fact that we as the people of God 
are called to do what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. In light of the mercies of God, we are to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice. We don't offer animal sacrifices anymore. Jesus came and was the ultimate sacrifice. But we do sacrifice. We sacrifice our lives. We sacrifice our own will. We sacrifice our own agenda to live to do the will of God. And therefore, we are living sacrifices. And we worship God as we give our lives to do his will. And so the first two verses are highlighting the fact that the temple of God is now about a people and not about a place. And it's about a people that God protects. And yet it talks about the fact that the outer court in verse 2, the outer court uh, is not to be measured and it's to be given to the nations. Now that can be understood in different ways, but one way to understand it is the people of God are going to be protected, but they're not going to be sheltered from persecution. They're going to bear the wrath, the rage of the nations. And I think that's the way to understand it because that's the experience of the church through the centuries. God has protected his people, but he has not kept them from persecution, has not kept them from being hated and being attacked. And that will certainly be the case at the end before Christ comes back. And yet in the Old Testament, we have verses like what we find in Psalm 3, where the psalmist says, O Lord, how how my adversaries have increased. And then he says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. And he says, I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. And Isaiah says, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. And so in one sense, the Bible seems to argue that we are a protected people. We can lie down and sleep and nobody's going to touch us. That no weapon formed against us will prosper. And that's true. We are a protected people. We're protected in all the most important ways. It's like Jesus told Peter, uh, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you return, encourage your brethren. That's the ultimate protection, is that our faith will not fail when things get really hard, when we are hated, when we are persecuted, that we will remain faithful. We will not curse God and die like Job's wife told him to do. You realize that the whole book of Job is telling us what Satan is up to in the world, to lead people to curse God when they suffer. And the evidence that we are his is that we do not curse God. We refuse to curse God. We may struggle like Job did, but we do not curse God. And that's how God protects us. He grants us grace not to curse him, but to praise him and to trust him and to believe that he still loves us even when the world hates us. But that means that we're still open to being hated. We're still being open to being persecuted. And we need to realize, like it says in Luke 21, Jesus says, uh, but you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you'll be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. Perish. 
They may put some of you to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. See the contrast there? You may suffer physically, you may even be put to death, but you will not lose a single thing that really matters. Not a hair of your head will perish. You'll be raised from the dead, glorified, and every hair of yours will be a part of that. God will see that you ultimately lose nothing. And so the first part of this uh, chapter is encouraging the people of God that uh, things are going to be dark and difficult, but I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The second part in verses 3 through 6 is he highlights the fact that there are going to be uh, two powerful witnesses. Um, It talks about these witnesses in verse 3. They will prophesy for 1260 days, um, which is about three and a half years. Uh, The idea of 42 months or 1260 days is a the same time frame. They'll be clothed in sackcloth, which is a picture of repentance. They'll be preaching to call people to repentance. Uh, But they're also called two olive trees and two lampstands, which is actually a picture taken from Zechariah chapter 4. And in Zechariah chapter 4, that passage is about the prince of Israel at the time and the, the high priest of Israel at the time that God was going to use and the rebuilding of the temple, the reestablishment of Jerusalem after the return from the exile. But what uh, is said in that passage in Zechariah 4 that I think especially applies here is, it says in verse 6, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The whole picture of the two lampstands and two olive trees that feed oil into the lampstands is a picture of the enabling of the Holy Spirit. So you've got a picture of two witnesses that are empowered by the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the truth in the face of severe and supreme opposition. It goes on to say in Zechariah 4 and verse 10, Uh, For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Talking about the rebuilding of the temple. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. There's another verse in the Old Testament that uses that same kind of language in 2 Chronicles when it says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his, i.e. his people. God's eyes roam to and fro throughout the earth to support his people. Um, His eyes on the sparrow, and he will not forget you. He will not forget me. He will not take his eye off his people, and he will not fail to protect them in all the ways they need to be protected, to sustain, sustain them, provide for them in all the ways they need to be provided for. And so you've got these two witnesses who are bearing witness. And obviously the question is, who are these two witnesses? And I agree with those who would say, for different reasons, these two witnesses appear to represent the church as a whole. And one of the reasons for that, it talks about in verse 7 later on, that the beast from the abyss will make war with them and overcome them. 
The same kind of thing is said in verse um, in chapter 13, talking about the beast again. Um, when it says in verse 7 of chapter 13, it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. So we see in verse 7 of chapter 13, it appears that the beast will attack the saints in general, all the people of God, uh, all the Christians on the earth. Um, In chapter 11, it talks about the church in terms of two witnesses. And part of that is in the Old Testament, two witnesses were required to confirm any truth in court. And so it's a picture of a valid, sufficient witness to the truth. The church is like two powerful witnesses. But the other thing that's interesting about this is that there are those also who think that maybe uh, this might have a more specific reference. And there would be those who would argue that this uh, refers to um, Elijah and Moses. Now, why would this be the case? Well, if you look in these verses, it says in verse 5, if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. It's an Old Testament story where Elijah is sitting up on this hill. Uh, The king of Israel sends some soldiers to arrest him. He calls down fire from heaven and it consumes them. We also know that Elijah... Uh, pray that it would not rain and it did not rain. And it goes on in verse 6 and it says, These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. But then it goes on to say they have power over the waters to turn them into blood like Moses did during the Exodus and to strike the earth with every plague like Moses did in the Exodus. So there are those who look at this and say, um, Sounds like Elijah and Moses. And, And didn't the Lord Jesus say um, at one place um, in Matthew 17, uh, his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. So some people look at that and say there are two different things that the Lord Jesus is referencing there. He's referring to the fact that Elijah has already come in the person of John the Baptist and the spirit of Elijah, he has come. But the Lord also says Elijah is coming. He's already come, he is coming. And that's why some would point to Malachi where it says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, before the return of Christ. And so there are those who would argue um, that this is going to be either in spirit or actuality, Moses and Elijah showing up at the end before Christ returns. Some would say, well, is it either or? The reality is prophecy tends to be very fluid. Could there be an an Elijah-like person and a Moses-like person, whether it's those two men in particular or not? Could there be at the end of time an Elijah-like person and a Moses-like person who God uses to bear testimony to the truth before Christ comes back, I think it's possible. I don't know for sure. I do think that it uh, talks about the whole church bearing a powerful witness to Christ. But one of the things that's interesting to me 
is that even among those who believe that the sign gifts have ceased, will acknowledge the fact that it says in 1 Corinthians that those gifts would not end until the perfect comes, which um, most people would say refers to the return of Christ. And so the question would be is whether or not if God would do in the past at the end uh, the same kind of thing. In the past, when certain um, really important things were about to happen, God did really significant things to get people's attention. And so in the time of Christ, he performed all kinds of miracles and made it very clear that something unusual was happening. It does say in various places that there will be great signs from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken before Christ comes back. And so you wonder what the powerful testimony of the church will be right before Christ comes back. And all I'm saying is that God uh, has a pattern of warning sinners before judgment falls. And he does it in a very clear and powerful way. And it's a very kind and merciful thing for him to do that. And that may be what is being pictured here. But like I said, this is very controversial. All kinds of ideas about what may or may not be the implications of it. But one way or the other, God is going to enable the church to testify powerfully in the darkest period of history. We will shine like bright lights. And the message will be clear. And the question will be, will people hear and repent and believe or not? And the next section makes it clear that many will not. In verses 7 through 10, it highlights that at the end, it will appear that Satan and the unbelieving world has won and put an end to Christianity, which is an interesting thing to think about. It says in verse 7, when they have finished their testimony, the testimony of the church, and in whatever way God might Uh, bear that powerful testimony. It says, The beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street. Um, Appears to be picturing Jerusalem. Like I said, some people see this as purely figurative, um, as Jerusalem now being Antichrist and Uh, another picture of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so it's a picture of the world's rejection, a picture of uh, the the church having been so oppressed, so persecuted that it appears to be snuffed out. Its influence in the world has been removed. Others think that maybe it has to do with these two individuals that actually manifest these great powers. But however you see it, one way or the other, the implication is that... um, the church has been significantly persecuted to the point that it says the beast will overcome them. The beast will kill them. And the world will rejoice. Now, that's an interesting thing, the whole idea of the world rejoicing. I wasn't planning on doing this, but I was talking with Jan this morning. She highlighted a... a, um, post from her sister and we were talking about that and I remembered a song that it's an old song that many of you are aware of I'm sure um, by John Lennon and I just pulled up the lyrics of it I want to remind you of the lyrics 
um, if it's still on here. Um, the title of the song is Imagine by John Lennon. And what he says is in this song, Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. Do you hear what he's saying? Do you really think about what he's saying? He's saying what a lot of people are saying, even in our day and time, in different ways. He's saying... Life would be better on this planet for everyone if there was no heaven and if there was no hell, if there were not individual countries and if there was no religion, especially Christianity, because that's where heaven and hell primarily come into play. He says if there were no possessions to make people greedy and wanting other things, he says then we could have peace. There would be no reason for war. We could be at peace. We would be one world at peace. But the key is, from his perspective, we have to eliminate religion, along with some other things, like countries and possessions, but especially religion and heaven and hell. That's why the people here in this chapter are rejoicing Because we've eliminated the thing that keeps us from world peace. That keeps us from real happiness. We've overcome the Christians, the great oppressors. That's where this rejoicing comes from. That's why there is this response. And they're actually sending gifts to one another. It's like Christmas time in that regard. Well, I mentioned before, I think uh, the last time we were in Revelation, that there's a passage in Luke chapter 18 where Jesus is encouraging us to pray and not lose heart. He talks about the story of this widow that needs to get help from a judge, and the judge doesn't fear God or man, keeps putting her off, and finally he says, I'll help this widow because she's going to wear me out if she keeps coming. And the Lord Jesus says, hear what the uh, unrighteous judge said. Then he says, now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night and will he delay long over them? When might that happen? Well, that can happen in different ways throughout history. God deliver us. God have mercy on us. Bring justice. Rescue your people and grant appropriate judgment to our persecutors. It will certainly happen at the end of time. You see that over and over in the book of Psalms. You see the psalmist crying out for God to rescue him, protect him, deliver him from his enemies, and to 
exalt those who trust in God. The last thing Jesus says is, I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly or suddenly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Which could very well imply that it may look like that the beast has overcome them and destroyed the church. He hasn't, but it may appear that way. It may look very, very dark right before Christ returns. But then it goes on to say, God will make it clear that the the beast and the enemies of God have not actually won. In verses 11 through 14, it pictures that. It says, at the end, God will publicly vindicate Christ and his people before a watching world. It says in verse 11, but after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake. And it goes on to talk about um, how the people responded, being terrified and giving glory to God. So obviously it depends on what you understand going on here, whether it's the whole church or It's just two significant witnesses at the end of time. But one way or the other, a very, very public display of the fact that they have not been overcome, even though it appears they've been overcome, is pictured here when God grants them life, raises them up, and they ascend to heaven. It's a very, very public testimony to the fact that Satan has not won, even though it may appear at some time and at different times that he has. It's interesting to me in Matthew 24, it says in verse 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then after the tribulation, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, which is the last trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So in that passage you have uh, Jesus showing up very publicly and rapturing his church in a way that everybody sees it. Now, obviously, there's debates about what that, that is going to look like and how it all is going to play out. But one way or the other, the, the implication of the passage is God will let a watching world know that the victory that they just celebrated was not a victory. That the people that they thought they had gotten rid of are actually those favored by God and those who have been raised to enjoy what we see pictured at the end of the chapter, which is heaven on earth. So that the last thing that's talked about in this chapter is that at the end, Christ will return to bring to a consummation the fruit of his finished work and usher in heaven on earth. And so in verse 15, it says, a seventh angel sounded. The seventh angel is the last uh, angel to blow the trumpet. And in different places in scripture, it says, Uh, At the last trumpet or at the great trumpet, uh, we will be changed and Christ will return. 
And that's why this passage seems to be celebrating what will be the ultimate result of the last trumpet, uh, which ushers in um, the final judgment of God on earth. And it talks about the fact that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And it goes on from there to basically talk about how this great tribulation, this great transition pain is going to give birth to heaven on earth, what we all long for, what we have longed for. Well, with just a few minutes I have left, I just want to highlight some things because basically what this passage is meant to do for us as Christians is to help us with our theology of suffering. The reality is in one sense that everyone's theology, what they think about God, is very closely aligned to what they think about suffering. Because what you think about suffering greatly influences your picture of God. If you're, if you're a prosperity gospel preacher and you don't believe suffering is ever, ever meant to uh, be experienced by a, a Christian that has sufficient faith, then that's going to influence how you picture God and what he's doing. And so what we have in the book of Revelation, in this chapter and, and largely in the book of Revelation itself, is God giving us a, a theology of suffering that we need to understand how God uses suffering because you could argue based on the uh, parable of the sower that there are three, three major things that trip people up when it comes to Christianity. One is a lack of understanding, a hard heart, um, a misunderstanding about what the truth really is. Another thing is suffering, heat, People go through hard times and they question the goodness of God. They question whether or not the Bible is really true. Then th- thirdly, it's materialism. It's, it's money, it's sexual temptation, and those kinds of things. You might call it the three things, hard truths, hard times, and hard cash. Um, those things loom large in people's eyes and can lead them, lead us to reject the gospel and reject the truth of God well, the book of Revelation is meant to encourage us not to be discouraged by hard times. Things can get very, very dark, and yet we can still trust God because as believers, we need to understand that there's a sense in which suffering is surgical. And what do we mean by surgical? We mean that uh, a surgeon inflicts pain intentionally, but he does it out of mercy. He inflicts pain mercifully to bring healing. And so God uses suffering in a rebellious, fallen world mercifully. That's why I can say in Lamentations 3, which was a book about the destruction of Jerusalem, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. But it also says in that same chapter, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? So that you have both the recognition that we suffer because of sin, both sin in general and sin in particular, and yet God's loving kindnesses and mercies are new every morning. They are over 
all of that. Suffering is God's mercy in disguise, as someone has sung. Secondly, we need to realize that there's a sense in which we need to recognize that God looks at suffering from both a wide-angle view and a narrow-lens view. The narrow-lens view means God doesn't delight in our suffering, in, in suffering itself. He doesn't get joy in seeing people suffer. That's why it also says in Lamentations 3, that same chapter, For the Lord will not reject forever, for if he causes grief, then he will have compassion, according to his great abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. He takes no pleasure in suffering in and of itself. That doesn't delight him. In the narrow sense, he is grieved by suffering. And he, he hates the sin that brings about the suffering. But from the wide angle, he sees how he is weaving it all together for the glory of his name and for the good of people. And he can say, I will ordain this. And I will delight in what I've ordained because of the end that he purposes. And yet, the Bible tells us that when Jesus came, he came to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil, which means to destroy sin, which means to destroy suffering. So ultimately, um, God sees um, suffering as a temporary thing, a momentary thing. It's a, it has an expiration date on it. It will not be forever. And that's why this chapter ends with rejoicing that the kingdom of God is coming to earth where the will of God is done on earth as it is in heaven. And there is no more sin and no more suffering. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 can talk about momentary light affliction that is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. So we trust that God is up to good things like a surgeon, that he doesn't delight in the pain that he's uh, uh, inflicting on people, that he's ordained, so to speak, and that it will come to an end at some point. And that finally, that he is working for the good of both unbelievers and believers through suffering. That suffering is, you call it return to cinder suffering or redemptive suffering. That God uses suffering for good even in the lives of unbelievers. If you read closely the book of Revelation, read the book of Ezekiel, and you'll see God talking about the fact that he sends judgment, he sends suffering to lead them to repentance. Um, Jesus tells um, the people in, let's see, it's Luke chapter 13, they come to him and they say, what, a, what do you think about um, Pilate? killing these Galileans and mixing their blood with their sacrifices. And what does Jesus say? He says, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? He says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what is Jesus doing? He's saying, you see that suffering? Let me tell you what you should learn from that suffering. Other people's suffering as well as your own suffering. God is calling you to repent. God is showing you what the, the outcome is of sin. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is suffering. That there's a just 
consequence to rebellion against God. And therefore, you need to realize that these sufferings in this world are calling you as an unbeliever to repent and find mercy. So it's God's mercy that you even see the suffering and that you experience suffering because it's meant to awaken you. As C.S. Lewis said, God is shouting to us in our pain, come to me, repent, find mercy and grace and joy and peace. And so God is using suffering in the lives of unbelievers, but obviously he's using it in our lives as well. That's why at the end of Job, um, Job has spent the whole book um, complaining about how God's running his life. And I fully can relate to Job because I would be just, I'd be right there. If I had lost all my family and if I had sores from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet, and if I had friends telling me it's all because you're a wicked guy, I would think, yeah, maybe, maybe something's wrong here. But in the end, God showed Job that even in our suffering, we can trust God that he is loving us, that he is being merciful to us, that he is not giving us over to um, the consequences of our sin, but he's actually rescuing us from our sin. And that's why in Job 42, uh, Job says, I know that you can do all things talking to God and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. He says, I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Why do we suffer as Christians? So that God can do for us what he could not do otherwise. It says in 1 Peter, we suffer if necessary. It's only if necessary for God to do for us things too wonderful for us to imagine. And we suffer that we might see him for who he really is. And that we might testify to a watching world that no matter what suffering comes, I will not curse God. I will not deny Christ. I will remain true to my God who's never done me wrong. That's the testimony of the church to the very end of time, that no matter what, that we can trust God. Revelation 11 encourages us to pray for grace, to be courageous, in the face of a world that may become increasingly hostile. It may be not so easy to be a Christian in this country like it has been in the past. But may we be faithful to a God who will be faithful to us. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time. We pray that you would help us to hear your word. Hear it as a word from you to us. And we pray that you would Grant us grace to trust you, to have a right theology of suffering, that we might rejoice even when things are hard, that we might remain true and faithful even when we're tempted and tested in difficult ways. Please help us, Father, and even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.